Welcome to the weekly message from Encounter, where the past has no future and hope is reborn. Our speaker today is Bishop Michael Rice, lead pastor at Encounter. coming to our house 5 o'clock tonight. I've ordered enough food to feed the state of Ohio. Alright, so you need to be there. You need to be there. Some of you know, um, a number of weeks ago, um, we began to fulfill the call on us to initiate a effort to help those that are in struggling with addictions alcohol or drugs and um, we we um, anything you do for the Lord is always a challenge it takes faith there's going to be hiccups and bumps in the road um, but we, we we launched some time ago and um, wanted this morning uh, because I felt like the Lord put it on my heart to have um, the fellow who's been with us the longest, uh, Matt, come up and uh, share with you a little bit about what, uh, where he was and what God is doing in his life. And um, uh, you, you heard David mention a treasure hunt. Um, we, um, on a semi-regular basis, go out on weekends and do what we call a treasure hunt. We, we set up a table, and, um, and there's an opportunity for people to buy T-shirts off of us or to give to this ministry because this ministry is at no cost to these individuals. They're provided free food, free housing, free everything we can give them, okay? And, um, but we call it a treasure hunt because we know that God shall supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. If we will first seek the kingdom of God. And um, we believe that in every human being there's a treasure and that treasure can be hidden but it's a treasure and and God is looking for people to go and find that treasure and um, and so we call them treasure hunts because the individuals who do these we're, we're the focus is not at all about the money because God will supply the need the focus is in ministering to the community we're going into and so they actively, prayerfully seek opportunity to pray with people and to share with people. And there are numerous incredible testimonies that have taken place. And also in that, we're, we're seeking God to bring us in contact with people who need this kind of help. And, um, and one of those treasures is Matt. And I want, I want Matt to come up here. Good morning, everybody. I'd just like to share my testimony on how I got here, what I've been through, and what, a, what God has done for me. The, the great, great things he's done for me. <laughs> it started about two months ago. I've been, it's about seven weeks now I've been here. I was, I was stuck in the middle of Kentucky, close to Louisville. It's 179 miles away from home, stranded car broke down, wasn't no fixing it. So I'm walking down I-65 on the side of the interstate. No hope. Thirsty. And I, I pray. I look up to God. And I tell him, just give me the strength to make it to one more exit, just so I can get a drink of water. Not 20 foot later, there was a bottle of water on the ground. And it was hot, but it was a bottle of water, a brand new bottle of water. And that touched my heart. That made me, that was when I started to believe in God again. And that's, that's when he started me on this path. And since then, I've, it's been such a blessing. He has brought so much into my life. I've not once thought about doing drugs I was a 20-year addict. I was on meth. I was an IV user. I, anything, any kind of drug you name, I would do it. I even smoked cigarettes, and I quit 
those just like that. Everything. By the grace of God. Thank you. And it's, I just, I want to thank everybody in this ministry. Brother James, Jeff, Dave, Mike, the whole body. I want to thank all of you just for the, the, the motivation you've gave me. And it's been such a blessing. Thank you all. Thank you. There's no follow on that. I'm done. All right. John chapter 4. Matt, we're glad that you're here. We're glad all the guys are here. And um, excited about what God is doing. Um, sometimes it feels like we're stumbling and falling, but I think we're stumbling and falling in the right direction. So that's a good thing, huh? John chapter 4, verse 5. We're reading the very same text we did last week uh, when we talked about if you only knew the gift. And um, God has a different direction to go with this. Maybe it's an add-on. Maybe it's a where if you only knew the gift too, but that's not what's on my heart to share. John chapter 4, verse 5. Speaking of Jesus, it said, So he came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you have spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive thou art that I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Would you be kind enough to stretch your hands this way and pray with me and for me? Father, I just I have one sole purpose, and that is to unburden my heart with what you burdened it with. And yet I, I know that that effort will fall short unless you, Holy Spirit, do what you do so well. You know every individual in this building. You know their heart. You know where they're at. And you know what you want to say to them. So I just release you to do what you do so well. I bind every hindering spirit. I break the stronghold of every lie in every life. And I thank you for what you're going to do, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we, we just in a quick review, we talked about what a what a separation there was between who Jesus is and this woman. That this had been going on for generations, and there was as big a divide as you can imagine. And when she comes to the well at the sixth hour, she came at that hour because that's when nobody else comes. Okay, normally the women would come early in the morning while it's cool, and that's when they would get the water for the household for that day, for the cooking and the washing and whatever they had to do. And they came at that time because it was kind of like a social event. Kind of like what women do with restrooms today. A restroom is a social event for, for women often. I, it, and it just seems natural, doesn't it? But it's, it's not natural for a guy to do that. You think about it. Doesn't it seem... Hey, Stetson, I'm going to go to the bathroom. You want to go with me? It just, it just, it just seems odd. When, when, when guys go in the restroom, we don't even look at each other in the face. How many know what I'm talking about? It's, hey, John. Yeah. Better yet, you don't, you don't even talk to each other. You kind of look, oh. Okay? You don't shake hands because you have no idea where in the process they are, okay? You just, you just don't do that. There's just not a time to share. But, 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 but in, in her day, that was a social event. And, and you can imagine the stories that had been spread about her. You can imagine the looks. You can imagine. And rather than deal with that, she comes in the middle of the day when she knows nobody else will be there. In fact, you get a little bit more of a glimpse into that when Jesus tells her about the living water. She says, tell me get that water so I don't have to come here anymore. And in the midst of this exchange, this is a, a, a woman who is as broke as she can be. Her life is a mess. And, and, and there's a wall between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the Samaritans think they're really the Jews. And the Jews know they're really the Jews. And, and they, don't, they don't even talk to each other. There's no, no sharing back and forth. And she's shocked that he would even talk to her. Why would you, being a Jew, be talking to me? And we talked about how last week that I think every one of us has had that experience with God, haven't we? If he knows all about me, why is he talking to me? Can anybody relate to that? He knows everything I've done. He knows everything I've said. He knows my past. He knows my family. He knows all all of this. He knows what a mess I am, and yet, and yet he leaves a bottle of water by the side of the road for me. Why? Why would, why would God do that? Why would God care? I think about what happened in the, on the night that I gave my heart to God in that little Baptist church in Sharon Center, Ohio. I'm in that, I know God always was, and I know he was always there with me, but in that moment, 
I was confronted by him. And why? What, what value am I to him? When I think of it from my perspective, I have no value to him. But when my opinion disagrees with his opinion, he's right and I'm wrong. And he, he placed value on me, and he, he placed value on this woman, and he, he engaged her in the, in the midst of her herd, and he, he began to talk to her and, 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 and share with her that he had something better for her life than what she was experiencing. That there was, there was more. That, that he knew her pain, and he knew who she was, and in spite of all the, the things that, that would seek to separate her from him, he was going to engage her. And I, I'm glad that God overcame all of my resistance. Anybody else? And answered my questions. I, I think Gilbeth's going to have one big special jewel in her crown when she gets to heaven because you know when I when I met her I wasn't a believer and I can't I can't even begin to tell you all the difficult questions I threw her way because I wanted it all to fit up here before I'd accept him anybody else been there and and that was the wrong way to go about it but but she was faithful to try and faithful to share and this woman, she is, it's according to your perspective, she's either shocked that he would talk to her or she's shocked because how dare you talk to me? You can't tell from the script. It could be either way. How dare you talk to me? And in the midst of that conversation, the heart of Jesus begins to be exposed. And, and he says to this messed up, broken individual, if you only knew the gift. He could tell she didn't have it. He could tell because she's hiding. He could tell because she has fear. He could tell because of the hurt. He, he could just tell. There's nothing that's hidden from God. You know that? I shared with the leadership, my wife and I started off somewhere yesterday, got detoured into a garage sale, and then another garage sale, and then another garage sale. And we walked up to the, the first garage sale, and these people were very well-to-do. If I go garage selling, I tend to go garage selling at people whose houses are better than mine because their junk is better than mine. And, and this woman, you know, she greeted us. She was smiling. She was bubbly. She, you know, she, she had it all together. And the moment I saw her, I just, I just had compassion. I, my heart broke for her. I just, there was something inside of me that I just wanted to reach up and grab her and give her a hug and try to comfort her. But people go to jail for stuff like that. <laughs> and, 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 and so I, we, we, we continued there for a few minutes at the garage sale and, 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 and bought a few little things. And her friend came and talked to her for a few minutes and then her friend left. And then she retreated into her house for a moment. And she came out with, of the house with her phone, and she walks up to Gail Beth, and she said, here's a picture of my mom. She died a few weeks ago. She was my best friend. And the tears just started to roll down her face. And I, I, know, I know why she did that. We're strangers. We're people at her garage sale. Do you understand that? What, what, she, what, what she was sensing in Gail Beth and sensing in me was the compassion of God coming through. And even though she fooled me with my eyes, with, with her composure and her jovial, joyful smile and her greeting, the reality is God knew her heart. And listen, God knew this woman's heart. And he didn't want her to feel what she felt. 
And he didn't want her to struggle with it. And he didn't want her to know the pain she knew. And he's just like, if you, if you only knew the gift. And who it is that's bringing the gift to you. And then he says, it's like the whole conversation takes a, a left-hand turn. It's almost, I know the first few times I read that as a young believer, I, I read that and I thought, boy, that's kind of, go get your husband. Knowing all along, she's had five. And the man she's living with doesn't love her enough to give her his name now. It's gotten as bad as it could get for her. And why would he stick his finger on that? This morning, the title of the message is simply, Where Was God? Because this, this woman is a real person, just like you and I. And I, I can, it's not a stretch to imagine that in the midst of her first failed marriage, God, where are you? You ever ask God, where are you? You ever gone through something so bad? Even if your fingerprints are on it? God, where are you? If you follow football, there's a wide receiver by the name of Antonio Brown who has probably messed up his life. And yet, if you read his tweets, he thinks it's everybody else. It's everybody else's fault. I could imagine that when the first marriage failed, where, where, where was God? And then the second marriage, and, and then the third. Do you think it's hurting yet? No doubt she went into every marriage with this thought, this is the one, this is the guide, we're going to make this work. And we don't know how long, but at some point in time, they look at each other and say, She either leaves or he kicks her to the curb, but neither one of those feels good. She's been through that once, twice, three times, four times, five times. Who wants her now? She is damaged goods. He's finally convinced a man, listen, you don't have to marry me. I don't want your stuff. I just, I just need a roof over my head. Whatever it takes, just give me a roof over my head. Give me some food. That's, that's pretty bottom barrel for life, isn't it? Why did God choose her? I think he chose her to tell this story is so that you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody more pitiful than she is in this moment, more broken. All the way at the beginning of the story, verse 5, he begins to give us a clue. It says, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. And we talked about last week, nothing's in the Bible just to be put there. It, every piece of it has information. Every piece of it is there for a reason. So we know that this spot that Jesus is standing on in this moment with this woman, we know it's on the land that Jacob gave Joseph. And we also know that even though Joseph owns the land, Jacob owns the well. And we start to get a picture about our relationship with God in that story. Because God reminds us that even though you own you, salvation is from him. It's not 
you and him, it's him. It's not 99.99% him and 0.01% you. It's all of God. We are saved by grace and not of works that any of us can boast about. The only involvement we have is accepting and believing what God did for us. But there's more in the story of Joseph. In the story of Joseph, you, you, know, you know the story. Joseph was Jacob's youngest son. He was the son that came to Jacob when he was old man. And there was a, a connection between Jacob and Joseph that was such that Joseph, truth of the matter is, Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved his other sons. And that didn't sit well with the other guys. They could tell that dad loved Joseph more. And Joseph did not, and Jacob did nothing to hide it. Jacob even had a coat made of many colors, and, and he gave it to, to Joseph. And you could just imagine the look on the other guy's face. Where's my coat? What makes you special? I was here first. I was here second. I was here third. I was here 11th. And now you come along and you get a coat. One day, Joseph had a dream. And he shared it with his brothers and his family. And he said, guys, I, I had a dream. In my dream, my, my, my stalk of wheat stood up strong and tall. And it was surrounded by all of your wheat, stalks of wheat. And your stalks of wheat were bowing down to mine. How could this go bad? <laughs> I'm sure they were excited at this story. Even Jacob was upset with it. Shortly after that, Joseph said, hey guys, I had another dream. In the dream... The stars and the sun bowed down to me. That may seem like a wild story, but that also tells us this is a, a precursor to Jesus coming. And it was that way then, and Jesus is, in this verse, Jesus is telling us to go back to that story because there's something there you need to see about that story. And Joseph one day was sent by his dad to go check on his brothers. They were supposed to be out in Shechem feeding the sheep. And Joseph went looking for them and they weren't there. And so he asked somebody and, and he said, I heard your brothers saying they were going to go to Dothan and feed the sheep there. And so Joseph headed to Dothan. And, and when they saw Joseph coming... They turned to each other and said, Behold, this dreamer comes. Let us cast him into a pit, and then we will see what becomes of his dreams. And so when Joseph got close, they threw him into a pit, and they were going to leave him there. They sat down at the edge of the pit, and they had a barbecue. They ate. And while they're sitting there, they saw a, a caravan was passing by in the distance. And one of them said, hey, let's, let's not leave him in the pit to die. That doesn't do us any good. Let's sell him into slavery. So they decide to sell him into slavery, so they pull him out of the pit. And they take him and they sell him into slavery, and the caravan goes on. And then they turn to each other, what are we going to tell Dad? So they take Joseph's coat and they take a goat and they kill it and they smear blood on it. Can you see the analogy here? And they take the coat back to dad and say, look it, we found this in the wilderness. What do you think happened? And Jacob said, surely my son is dead. And the Bible says that he mourned. 
when I reread the story this week so that I made sure I had my facts right, I was shocked at one little statement in there. And it says, and his brother, his sons mourned with him. You're not the only one that's had fake friends in life. Joseph gets taken into Egypt, and the guy who's in charge of the soldiers that guard Pharaoh takes Joseph into his house. Joseph is, is, is given, given leadership position, and everything he does is touched by God and is blessed. But Joseph was also a handsome man, a lot like people we see in magazines. <laughs> Sorry. I've got to keep the story believable, folks. And the Bible says that Potiphar's wife looked at him and tried to seduce him. And she tried, and she tried, and he was a man of character and honor. One day, while there was nobody else in the house, Joseph went in to go about his duties, and she grabs him and said, Nobody's here. Lie with me. He squares his shoulders. He looks her in the eye and said, Listen, your, your husband has been nothing but good to me. He trusts me more than he trusts anybody else. How dare I? He, he has given me everything he has except you. How dare I lie with you? And so he turns to run, and she grabs his coat, and he runs to get away from her, and she screams. They hear her screaming, and the guards come, and she says, this man came in to rape me, and my husband, who brought these Hebrews into our house, look what he's put me up to. And when her husband comes home, she tells her husband what happened, and he takes Joseph and has him put into a prison. And Joseph is there for quite a while. And one day, Pharaoh gets upset with the baker and the butler. I don't, know what, I don't know how bad a baker you got to be to tick off the king, but he did. And the butler. And they're thrown into prison with him, and they're in there for a while, and Joseph hasn't been in prison very long, and he's now made head of the prisoners. It may be a small pond, but he's a big fish in a small pond. And so now he's made head of the prisoners, and one day the baker and the... And the the butler both have a dream, and they bring the dream to Joseph, and the butler goes first, and he tells Joseph the dream, and Joseph says, dude, this is good news for you. In three days, the king is going to restore you to your position. The baker's like, okay, now my turn. I got to tell you my dream. He tells them the dream. And Joseph says, your dream is as sure as his dream is. And the baker goes, all right. And he says, in three days, the king's going to have your head cut off. Sorry. And your carcass is going to be fed to the birds. How many know that's a bad day? I'm, I'm going, there's a point here, folks. Listen, there's a profound point here. Three days later, the butler is restored to his position. Before he leaves, Joseph says, now when you do get restored to your position, don't forget about me. Tell the king about me. The butler gets up to the king, and he doesn't tell anything about Joseph for two years. One day, the king wakes up, and he's had a dream. And it troubles him, and he goes back to sleep, and he has a second dream. And that was as troubling as the first dream. And so he called for all the magi of the land to come, and he shares his dream with them. 
so that they would interpret it. And all of them listen to the dream, and they're, you know, they can't even make up a good story. He says, sir, we, we have no idea. We have no idea what that dream means. And the butler, now remembering Joseph, said, sir, I've done wrong. When I was in your prison, I met a guy who, who could help you with this dream. So the king calls for him. They take Joseph out of the prison. They clean him up. They get him shaved, good looking. And he goes before the king, and the king tells him the two dreams. And Joseph says the two dreams are one. There's going to be seven years of abundant blessing in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And the fact that God showed you the dream twice means this is going to happen and happen soon. So I would advise the king to find somebody who he trusts, somebody who is good, and you've got seven years to save up for the seven bad years. And the king looks at Joseph and basically says, I don't know anybody better than you. You're the man. And for seven years, just incredible abundance. And Joseph is good at squirreling it away, and he's good at saving it up. And then the seven bad years come. And the famine hits, and sometime into the famine, Jacob turns to his sons and says, if you don't go into Egypt and get food, we're going to die. So he sends all of his sons. They put their money in sacks, and he sends them off, but he keeps one of them back, Benjamin. Because Benjamin is the second youngest, and he even says, I remember what happened to Joseph. I'm not going to let that happen to Je Benjamin. Benjamin stays here. And he sends the other ten sons off. And they come to Egypt, and they engage Joseph. And they bow before him, and they say, Sir, we, we need food. He says, I think you're spies. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. We're back at the well. He knew who she was. She didn't know who he was. And he says, I'll give you food. And you can take it home to feed your families. But the only way I know to prove that you're not spies is you're going to leave one of you here. And you go back to your families and you bring your younger brother with you back here. And then we'll know you're not spies. So Joseph instructs his guys that are helping him to fill up their sacks with feed, but also put all their money back in the sacks. He charges them nothing for what he gave them. You see the parallel? The guys get a couple of days' journey off, and they stop to have a meal, and one of them reaches into their sack to get something, and he finds all their money. And then the others check their sacks, and they've got all their money, and now they're afraid because they're afraid that Joseph is going to think they stole all this. So they get home, and they tell Jacob, what has happened, and they tell him that, I think it's Reuben is back there in prison, and he won't let him go until all of us come back with Benjamin. And Jacob says, I can't, can't, no. This is just, this guy thinks you stole from him, and then you want me to, no, it's not going to happen. Sorry, Reuben. That's how they came up with the Reuben sandwich. And, and so time goes by. That's not true. I just said. 
Time goes by, and all the food that they had brought back from Egypt is now gone, and they're hungry again. And Jacob is now forced to do what he doesn't want to do. He sends the ten back with Benjamin. And when they return, that's when Joseph reveals himself. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's what happens. Where was God when this woman's first marriage failed? Why didn't he help? Why didn't he fix her so the second one wouldn't fail? And where was he when the second one failed? And why didn't he help her so the third one wouldn't fail? Are you with me? And more on a personal note, where was God when you needed him? Where was he? When in that moment of incredible pain, where was God? Where was he? I've shared this story before, and I'll tell it very quickly for those that don't, haven't heard it. She used to come in late at service. Our side door used to be over there in, the, in, the, in that particular church, and she would come in after we were well into worship. And the moment we would stand for all the service, she, she was sitting over there, and she would just get up and just she'd leave. She never wanted to talk to anybody. I don't know that she had ever talked to anybody in the several weeks that she had come. And one time I'm preaching, and all of a sudden, you know, and I see her, and the Holy Spirit says, call her up here. And, and, and she was of Indian descent. Her name was Shawnee. She was every bit as tall as I was. She had very hard, chiseled features. She was a pretty intense woman. I mean, in a fight, I could have took her, but <laughs> who knows? And, and the Holy Spirit said, tell her to come up here. And, 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 and so I, I asked her to come up here, and, and she walks right up to me, and she gets a little bit closer than people normally would get. And she looks me in the face, and she says, this better be good. And my thought was, well, see there, God, we have agreement. Because I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> this, this, this can't just be high. You, you better have something for her. And I have nothing. And all of a sudden message and tongues comes out and somebody else in the building I don't remember if Gail Beth was standing right there or she was just up in front I don't remember but Gail Beth interpreted the message and this is the first and only time I've ever heard this happen the message was to her and God said to her when you were five and you hid in the back of the closet and you covered your ears so you wouldn't hear. And you asked, God, where are you? He said, I was right there with you. And then when you were seven, and he named something specific that happened in her life, and you again asked, God, where were you? God said, I was right there. You could just see her, her sternness beginning to melt because nobody in this room knew any of that. But you probably have the same question I have. Okay, so he was there. Why didn't he do anything about it? Is that a fair question? Maybe the answer is found in we're running towards the wrong goalposts. 1929 Rose Bowl. 
University of California at Berkeley is paying Georgia Tech. And a defense California, a fellow by the name of Roy Riggles, intercepts a pass down near his own goal line. And he starts to run in the right direction, but then he gets hit by two guys and he gets spun around but he doesn't hit the ground, and when he is done spinning, he just takes every bit that he has, and he just keeps running. The problem is he's running the wrong way. And he runs 68 yards in the wrong direction. And in fact, he said it was one of the most glorious moments because everybody was yelling for me. And the reality was, his team and his fans were yelling at him, and the Georgia Tech fans were yelling for him. Because he's about to score a touchdown for Georgia Tech. He plays for California. <laughs> and his own teammate tackles him, on the two-yard line. Listen, I'm wrapping this up. You need to know that God is not in it for the temporary. He's in it for the eternal. Our dog, uh, we've had him for 140 years or something. He's, he's, he's old. He's old. In dog years, I think he's up in his 80s. Am I correct, Gail Beth? Maybe in his 90s in dog years. He once was a puppy, now he's old. And um, took him to the vet, and they said he had diabetes, and now he needs to get a shot twice a day. I don't like doing that. If I do it just right, he, he, he barely flinches. But occasionally, it doesn't work just right, and he, he flinches for a moment. But if we don't give him the shot, he dies. Joseph kept Reuben because he wanted all of them. They came to Joseph wanting something. Joseph wanted them. And there are things in our life that our Heavenly Father wants to take away. But he allows it to stay because it brings you back to him. It's a temporary pain. And this week he flooded my heart with this truth that when his people get to the place that it is no longer their pain bringing them to him but their relationship with him that brings them to him he is then free to take away the pain does that make sense? Am I cruel when I get bingo and I have to pinch his skin and find a fold and I stick the needle in and most of the time it goes good but every once in a while he goes Eep! and he, am I, am, I, am I being mean? Is that being awful? You see your heavenly father wants all of you forever. And this temporary pain 
is not worthy to be compared to the eternal glory that is in heaven. And and when we see things from that vantage point, you want to know how earnest God is with this? When his messenger, his son, is on this planet and he's talking, he said, listen, if your right hand is offending you, cut it off. It's better to enter into heaven maimed than to go into hell whole. He said, if your right eye is offending you, rip it out. You you and I would say that's pretty drastic. It's not drastic compared to an eternity separated from God. So I hear God saying, I'm willing to suffer along with you if this suffering brings you to me. And I long for the moment I can free you from the suffering when you come to me because you love me and not because you want something from me. Because you want something, I want you. So let's make a trade. It's the greatest deal that's ever been made. Come now, he says, and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make them white. That's the deal, God says. And this temporary pain, as deep as it is, is a drop in the ocean compared to the pain that I will carry and that you will carry if you spend an eternity away from me. So I will be there with you through every step of the way. And my love will take this away from you the moment I can take this away from you and you stay here with me. But until that moment, it is that pain. How many know what I'm talking about? It's that pain that keeps making you come back to him and because you don't know where else to turn and you don't know what else to do. And somehow, some way. And so he keeps Reuben and says, when all of you come back, I'll free him. Would you stand to your feet? That's Bishop Michael Rice, lead pastor of Encounter. More messages from Pastor Rice are available at our website, godenc.com. You can subscribe to our regular podcast through our website or on iTunes. Find us on Facebook under Encounter.